0: Let's talk about Digital Identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolayo. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity. And the focus of today, this conversation is going to be about trust frameworks. For that, we have an amazing guest who knows a lot about this, who is Titi Akin Sanmi. She's a public policy thought leader on the digital economy focus on shaping an enabling environment for innovation. A thought leader, coach, and mentor, TT has served as a berman Klein Fellow, the Faculty of Law at Harvard University, from 2018 to 2020, an advisory and steering committee board member at GoodID with the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on the Digital Economy, and on the strategy and advisory team on digital identity. TT is a member of the technical advisory group on the fourth industrial revolution of the UNDP Africa and serves on the Presidential Advisory Committee on the Digital Economy Startup Bill.ng for Nigeria. She has spent the last two decades globally advising, speaking, and delivering on laws and policies connecting the public, civil, and private sectors. Her expertise is discerning which, where, and how regulations and policies help harness digital opportunities while mediating its emerging tensions, addressing gaps, and building sustainable allies. She is the global policy team lead for Google Assistant and Hardware and having previously led the cluster for the global tech giant as the government affairs and public policy lead for West and Francophone Africa. She is a mama of three and a
1: wifey to one. Hello, Titi.
0: Hello. Very welcome. It's, it's nice having you. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be able to join us.
0: Excellent. So let's talk about digital identity. I would like to hear more, a bit more about you. So please tell us about yourself and what was your journey to this world of identity?
1: Thank you very much again. Telling me about my journey in itself is a podcast, I think. But the short, short, short version of it is this. I recall that in my final year of university, of my very first degree, my very first university degree, I was in a situation where I realized that, yes, I was graduating with the first degree, but I had absolutely no idea how to use technology or navigate the world using technology, at least not as at the level I thought I needed to be able to do it. And that fueled a passion in me to one build up my capacity. But in building up my capacity, it became even more obvious that there were a whole lot more people like me who didn't right, have the right technical skills. And yes, they didn't have. There were a lot more people who didn't have the right technical skills. But there was an endless array of end users who had absolutely no idea around what technology could, you know, the difference technology could make in their life. But more so that there were governments in place that were approaching the adoption, deployment, and growth of technology without having the right regulatory environment in place that ensured the user was consistently in the middle of it. So that's, well, quite a bit of work. I ended up, you know, in the policy space, the public policy space, the regulatory space, whichever level you want to put in it. And increasingly, I began to see for me that you as a user, because of the quote-unquote non-geographical nature of the internet. And I say that with a caveat, I can hear the technical folks going, what do you mean it's non-geographical? You could literally adopt a variety of persona, a a variety of identities. And, you know, concurrent with that was an increasing shift or growth in the use of new technologies that more or less was pulling the world as we used to know it into the digital space. So there was increasing measures around securing your existing personal information, increasing measures around being able to port your data, your personal data, so to say, as well as, you know, there were human beings who were deciding I'm going to be XYZ in this space, but I will be XYZ in that space. And that for me is at the core of all the conversations around data, around privacy. It's the end user and into the digital space and what they choose to adopt and use it for. So to some extent, if, you, if you're if you asking, okay, I'm telling you about myself, I'm a policy wonk. Everything I do resonates and returns to the place of putting in the right structures, whether it be policies, regulations, laws, legislation, find whatever label you want to find for it, but ensuring that the digital world can not just grow and continue to innovate, but that the end user, the consumer, the human being, at least for now, the human being behind it or making use of it does not get lost.
0: Yeah, I think mean, it's super interesting that even though I think you, you you didn't study technology, right? But you graduated and you had this interest about knowing more in technology and having this uh, genuine interest for the ultimate user, the end user. So.
1: Yes, absolutely. I, my first, I don't have a first, my first degree that I was referencing. It's not even in technology mm-hmm. at all. My first degree is in English, uh, oh. English language with um, two minors in French and literature. So you can imagine the kind of educational system I was in where, yes, I was getting this first degree and I could do amazing things with it, but nobody had thought it was important for me to be equipped, right, mm-hmm. with the technological skills that will enable me operate in the years post-Y2K. And I'm dating myself mm-hmm. by saying Y2K. But that gives you some context. But part of what I did, I am an entrepreneur also. Uh, yes, policy won first, but I, I'm i a Nigerian by birth, so um, I have the hustle spirit in me. When that incident happened, part of what I did was deliberately brought my skills to bear. I made a snack that is very ubiquitous to us uh, across West Africa, Chin Chin. I sold those to a plethora of people and I sent myself to evening computer school, which was my first foray formally post high school where, you know, you had to take computer science as part of your course. So I spent the next, what, plus or minus about 18 months in the evenings while working during the day, learning everything I could about the computer from computer language all the way through to, you know, how to be a good hacker all the way through to the many uses of it. And it was in this process that I got connected to the, what was the, the World Summit and the Information Society and I actually then led that process from a youth angle and ensured that while policies were being written at the UN level, they were not leaving out. They actually had been, but then they were not leaving out young people who are actually at the forefront of innovating with technology and adopting it and making use of it. And that's what's led more or less to this space now.
0: Well, I can see. So also entrepreneurial from from the very beginning of your professional career.
1: Oh yes, it's a very deliberate choice. I grew up in an environment with uh, parents. And I'm appreciative of this. They were perfectly imperfect. That <laughs> consistently demonstrated to us that yes, have an education, but more importantly, and this is the way it's put it in my culture, have skill sets that you can make use of your hands, make use of your physical being, right? To be able to deliver and make sure you can earn. And that has paid off for me. So if for any reason this policy side does not really work, I can open up a hair salon and do great with that. Or I can actually open up a restaurant and cook great African food.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. You have a lot of backups or, for, <laughs>
1: oh, yes, for career.
0: Do. And I'm sure you will enjoy that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: The way I hear you.
1: <laughs> Don't worry. When we do eventually meet in person, I owe you a meal. Well, wow. <laughs> thank,
0: thank you very much. Fantastic. Well, fast forward to these times, I know now you are based in Canada and you work with different global initiatives and a a lot is related to the trust frameworks. So in these trust frameworks are are being developed across the world. So tell us a bit, some insights into what you are seeing right now in in terms of trust frameworks.
1: Ah, I will start by saying this, right? that digital identity has, quote unquote, become increasingly mainstream. Over the last, what, plus or minus seven years, the conversation has moved away from purely technical spaces or policy-oriented spaces to, you know, being featuring more in day-to-day conversations. And that has meant that there is a plethora of, what do we call it, Digital identity systems that have been developed from Australia to Canada to, you know, sub Saharan Africa, South Africa, Nigeria, all the way through to Estonia as well. There have been leaders, right, either governments or even industries that have developed trust frameworks that enable digital identity. But not all of them have always come from the point of entrenching trust, right, in the digital economy. Mm-hmm. But before I go ahead, first. I can hear the listeners going, okay, so what are you talking about first? What is digital identity? What is a trust framework? Digital identity is a set of potentially credentials, things that can be presented in the digital space that helps, you know, confirm that you are who you are. So in light of that very simplistic definition, right, we've only got so many minutes, a trust framework typically describes a set of auditable business, technical, or even legal rules that apply to the identification authentication and authorization of accessing resources across organizations or across a network, right? So that such a framework then enables that these systems and the services that they offer can be trusted and ultimately mass adopted. And that's on the side of those offering particular services. On the side of the end user, trust frameworks are in place to be able to verify, authenticate that you are who you say you are when you want to access those services. So I'll talk real quick around you know the kind of trust frameworks that we're finding in general, starting with my current home here in Canada. There's the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework, which is very user-centric in the kind of requirements it has. So think choice, control, all of it built on the notion of privacy by design, right? A deliberate inclusion in the design of technology that is privacy-focused, privacy-first, so to say, which is a foundational element for, you know, anything that you're doing or on the platform. If you look at the PCTF website, that's the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework website, it says it's designed for it to be suitable for digital identification, authentication, credential, online credential, authorization systems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they have put it in place to be used by government entities, citizens, or business partners. So that's for Canada. And I'm being very deliberate about not mentioning, you know, the likes of the U.S., which has the digital identity guidelines and the Federation and assassin's Framework, which you can reference. I'm being very deliberate about speaking to other spaces that are not seen as digitally dominant in the digital economy space, right? We also have the European Union, which historically included the UK, but, you know, we talked in Brexit this morning and the EU has what it calls the IDAS, the Electronic Identification, Authentication and Trust Services Regulation, which is has been put in place, particularly to regulate electronic signatures, transactions, and embeds uh, processes that provide a safe way for users to conduct business online. I do know that it was June this year, I believe it was the 3rd of June particularly, that they proposed a trusted and secure digital identity, which will allow all EU citizens, residents, and businesses to be able to link their national digital identities with proof of other personal attributes. So think your driver's license, Bank accounts, and also be able to access services online without having to use private identification methods, or even you know, necessarily sharing any extra personal data. This is one of the things I'm really gung ho about when it comes to digital identity and the trust frameworks. Is the ability for those who are on the design end of things to put in place technology that then means that I, as an end user, can pick and choose what credential I'm sharing at any point in time. The UK has developed its own digital identity and attribute trust framework. Australia has a really advanced one, the trusted digital identity framework. So those are a few that are in place. There are two or maybe three parts of the world I haven't really spoken to, but there are, so think Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Asia. What's happening in this space is around digital identity. Digital identity is very much at the core of a lot of the adoption of technology that's happening, a lot of the startup ecosystem, for example, that we're seeing emerge out of Africa, the fintech space is very much built on being able to have the what I have defined as you know the technology behind authentication, verification, access of service, etc. However, they have not necessarily framed it as, oh, we have a trust framework in place, but the critical elements are being put in place. And that for me is really heartening. And maybe we'll get to it a bit later around, you know, being able to ensure interoperability and all of that. But so far... Lots of identity registries being set up in sub-Saharan Africa, which is my heritage, where I am from. I always say that I'm a Nigerian by birth, but an African, you know, by choice and global citizen. And then in Latin America as well, um, because this is central to a lot of the quote-unquote solutions that in place. And of course, there, there are flags around from the privacy folks, which includes myself, around if we have this ubiquitous collection, of data, digital identity, what does it mean for privacy? But I'll hand it back to you and let, let's take the conversation forward. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's, it's interesting to, you have mentioned particularly some countries that are, about, let's say, more advanced than others, but you also have said that in, in other countries, there is the government don't mention the word this is a trust framework, but they, they are the, the elements of that. So, so mm-hmm. What about as most of trust frameworks are seen is in a... Uh, maybe with the exception of the European Union, most of them are just one country, one country completely separately. So now that we are in a, in a time when, when there's a lot of business across borders, how will this trust framework interact with each other?
1: Okay, so I'll first start from this. I'm putting on my Canadian hat now. Yes, the European Union is not one country, but if you look at Canada, for example, mm. which is a provincial system of governance, the provinces actually operate relatively independent of each other, right? If you dig deep, Ontario has its own work um, ongoing around digital identity, as does the British Columbia, and these are all provinces within Canada. So in as much as, you know, one is a collection of countries, the approach that's been taken in Canada is very similar to what's been done in Europe, in that these are independent governance structures coming together and actually looking to put in place an interoperable, trust infrastructure that backs all of the digital identity being put in place. The same in sub-Saharan Africa. The approach is riding off of the African free ta- the African continental free trade agreement, the digital aspect of it, to ensure that there's actually interoperability to put the structures the legal structures in place to ensure that there's interoperability, even with the basic identity document that you need to be able to carry to move around across the continent. So how would they be able to operate, so to say? This is where it is important that conversations are not happening in silos, right? And that trust frameworks that are being put in place, reflective of a common agreement, And this is where the question mark is. I know 2020 has been what it is, but part of the proposals that had been put on the table was that there needed to be more conversations, particularly around what you would call the G20 countries, around digital identity and the tenets that were being put in place that would ensure that if I have a set of verifiable credentials coming out of the EU, they should be presentable when I come to North America. And the same if I come from Sub-Saharan Africa or even North Africa, I can present it in Asia. Now, if you allow me, I'll take a quick pause and say that this would have gone a bit slower But one of, and this is not in any way good or a sign of that the pandemic has been great, but one of the things the pandemic, the the COVID-19 pandemic has forced us to do is not just sit as individual countries and figure out how you can ensure people are safe and steady while not violating their privacy rights but also force us as humans on this earth to interact and connect a whole lot more. So borders are finally opening. And as part of that process, I can take my vaccination certification, right? Whether it's a QR code or, you know, it's just a PDF document. And I can actually present that in other spaces in other countries. And I'm able to, you know, it's verifiable because a set of standards have been agreed. And there's a saying that there's nothing new under the sun, right? And it's not that this has not been done before. I'll give you an example, particularly around um, the quote-unquote contentious vaccination certifications or, you know, proof of vaccination. As a West African, as a Nigerian by birth, all my traveling life, which now is, pra- is almost going to 30 years, I have had to carry with me something called a yellow card, a yellow fever card that actually shows my vaccination history, right? Helps identify that I am free of yellow fever, right? And I have had to present this for me to be able to either apply for visas or even get into certain countries, not just on the African continent, but in Europe, in the U.S., et cetera. Now that has been put in place. That is a form of physical identity that I believe precedes what we now see with the COVID vaccination. And that's on the one hand of digital identity. On the technical side is the ability to be able to connect with particular services, right? If you're thinking, okay, I want to be able to access XYZ service being offered, or I want to be able to access, you know, on the organizational side, XYZ users' data. The ability to be able to then verify this is very much dependent on a set of standards, right? And a common framework that enable interoperability, right? And that can be a really tough call because, you know, the interpretations around trust really differs across borders. So yeah, to finalize, I must say that Any institution that's looking, any institution or even the end user, and you'll notice I'm speaking a lot from the perspective of the end user, because, again, I don't want us to lose the conversation around trust frameworks, just around, you know, the infrastructure, the digital infrastructure that needs to be in place, is that for any institution, uh, you know, there's predictions that by 2023, any organization that wants to be able to instill digital trust and wants to participate at the very least in 15% more ecosystem will need to sign up in one way or the other to a digital trust framework. But I do think the technology is in place. We just need to be able to agree.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I see. With the example, you have you have uh, mentioned yes, uh, technology. Most of the technology is is available already. It's a matter of uh, agreeing between the yeah transferable between the countries. Something else I would like to. Jumping a bit off topic, something else, I like to hear from you is, as you are you work closely with data privacy, you have mentioned a few times, and now you're sitting on the board of the Good ID. Please tell us, tell us more about what is Good ID, and, and yeah, how is it spreading the word about its project?
1: Yes, I must say I will start from when I first got the call, Oscar, that when I was told, you know, would you please join the advisory board. For good ID, the first question I have for them is What do you mean by good ID? How do you define good ID? Good ID in one context could be terrible ID in another context, right? But you know, it, it was a good way to step forward. And I will tell you, this is why I am open and consistent about supporting and continue to be a part of good ID. It is at the very core of it best practice uh, with respect to identity management, which promotes the principle of privacy and security. So it's practice, it is a movement, a series of conversations, a series of standard setting that pushes for the centrality of privacy and security, either on the infrastructure building side, the digital infrastructure building side, on the end user side, or on the governance side, whether they be governance from government or from elsewhere. Good ID is a valuable identity management approach that allows everyone without restrictions to not just participate but to play an important role in their own identity management and i think it's important to emphasize that that each one is able to play an important role a critical role in their own identity management so you can think of the gamut of being able to fully grasp as an end user what digital identity is and how you can manage it as an end user all the way through to the one who is looking to innovate to provide some you know some services at any of the parts of digital identity, for them to have a full understanding of how they can participate. Good ID uses the principles of inclusion, transparency, and accountability in entrenching public trust in ID management. And some would ask, why is this necessary? Because, you know, there has been, the biggest fear is that 1984 by Judge Orwell will come to pass, meaning Big Brother will constantly be able to control. Some would say that's already in place but I would argue that actually it's not in place where we have the biggest concern is that we don't have enough people who care enough to make informed choices. Most people just want to be able to get along with it, just get it done. Right? So that's what good ID is. It's been around for about three, maybe, maybe slightly like three and a half, four years now. And it's at a phase right now where we are looking to be able to grow further knowledge on the folks who are doing great work around good ID, but more importantly, also further sensitize around the adoption of laws that enable digital idea across board. And also, you know, just promoting those who are doing great work in terms of organizations or even individuals.
0: As you said, part of this is educating end users how to Well, take control of their good practices of identity, whichever tools, services are are using today. And then it goes to, for instance, um, helping how to design, how to design uh, applications, services based on data privacy. Correct?
1: Yes, correct. And all of this is informed by the fact that, you know, context always differs. Such that, you know, the design and the development of one technology is not a key to us for the entirety of the world, but that adoption and adaptation would need to happen across different spaces. And that's part of what makes the conversation really tough about around the adoption of a trust framework, right, on digital identity. But because it's tough does not mean it's not doable.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like in with trust frameworks, every every country has different uh, reality in terms of the services. Yeah both uh, public and private so it's yeah
1: yeah it certainly does it certainly does and you know for those who have an interest i would say that they should go spend a bit more time i just walking through what the pan canadian trust framework speaks to as well as the australian model i think those are really interesting models that could be potentially adaptable across various economic environments nothing against the idas actually but it can be quite onerous that's the eu trust framework
0: and good idea. Where is operating the most nowadays? Uh, I, I guess the idea is to be uh, global, correct? But now, right now, where is uh, has more presence?
1: Oh, good idea. Good ID is definitely global. You cannot mm-hmm. go to a particular office and identify. Oh, this is where good okay. idea is. That's why I said it's also a movement. And one of the things I'm really appreciative of is that we've had the privilege of being able to curate. Conversations and influence conversations across the world. So, you know, you will find Good ID. If you go to the website, Good ID, you will find conversations, you will find articles, you will find resources for Asia, for Sub Saharan Africa, for Europe, and for North America, and also for Latin America. And that's one of the things that I think demonstrates the need for us to be able to take these conversations and not just have it amongst ourselves, but also help guide those who make the laws, right? In as much as the private sector or even the civil society can be at the forefront of conversations, if we don't have the requisite laws and regulations in place or the institutions that are tasked with guarding this, you know, we're still all just having a conversation and operating outside, quote unquote, the law. So yeah, you will find good ID online. You will find good ID everywhere.
0: Excellent. Just one more thing about trust frameworks. How important are the, Trust frameworks to to ensure data privacy?
1: Right. That's a really good question. A key reason why you would set up a trust framework, right, is to protect data, right? To put privacy practices at the core of it. The goal is to be able to protect the personal information of individuals across boundaries, across digital ecosystem. So if digital identity systems are being designed without an agreed set of standards or principles, right? An agreed set of processes that specify how data should be handled, then we are going to have the big brother state, right? So I'll go back to the PCTF. It's again around instilling confidence of end users that there's protection in the disclosure use of the identity and personal information while ensuring that secure and privacy-enhancing services are readily available, right? So the trust framework is around ensuring that there's efficiency, that effectiveness is happening, meaning you can do what exactly you set out to do, either as a service provider or an authenticator in the process. And that, you know, there's ongoing confidence in digital services being provided. It's an ongoing work. I don't think it's one that you start. It's about having the right processes and systems in place to ensure that this does not change. And being able to say it in really simplistic terms, not just in technical terms.
0: A final question for all business leaders listening to us right now. What is the one actionable idea that they should write on their agendas today?
1: Amazing. All business leaders, meaning across sectors, not specific to one. It's this. I'm like, you know, this is known, you know, there's the it's not an idea or thought that they I assume they would not have had. If you're going to write anything into your agenda, it's this privacy, data privacy, particularly around personal information is not an issue that will go away. So if there's any actionable thing you can do, it's this, that at the core of innovating, either an idea, a new technology, or a delivery of a service, that you put privacy first. That's one. How do you put privacy first? It means that you need to be able to sit in the seat of the end user. And that end user could be an individual or it could actually be another organization or an institution. And design in a way that Trust is strengthened, meaning I am confident enough as an institution or an individual that when we are having this transaction, when I'm giving you my data, it will only be used for what it's meant to be used for. It will only access what it needs to access. That's actionable. So innovate, design with privacy first in mind, not by design only, but that it's consistently iteratively checked against how personal information is being used. Don't design just for your local context, design in a way that anybody anywhere across the world would be looking to be able to engage with what you're designing or what you are looking to sell or what you are offering in terms of service or platform. The world is global, there are physical boundaries. But remember, with the internet, the boundary is only as much as we set it.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Titi. Fantastic. And and I agree that Privacy first, of course. Thank you so much for this super interesting conversation. Knowing more about you, your fascinating stories, and the work you are doing about trust frameworks and privacy. For people who like to continue the conversation with you or learn more about your work, please let us know how. Yeah, how we can find you?
1: Oh yeah, you can find me. I will say that for the longest time, I hid from the rest of the world behind pseudonyms, but you can find me across all platforms at. Titi Akisami. So that's at my first name and my surname. And I will tell you, I am a policy wonk. Yes, you will find me speaking of policy, but you will also find me sharing about the totality of who I am in different spaces in different ways. You can also find me if you want to have a chat a bit more professionally. Yes, on www.titiakisami.com. Thank you, Oscar.
0: Fantastic. It was a pleasure talking with you, Titi, and all the best.
1: Thank you very much, Oscar. Have a really great one. Thank you, listeners.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity, produced by Ubisecure. Stay up to date with episode at ubisecure.com slash podcast or join us on Twitter at Ubisecure and use the hashtag LTADI. Until next time.